July 25th, 2009 in Auckland, the kidnapping of the Brahmins' babies. So we're on our last break. He 
people who are just interested in amassing money and power and pleasure at the cost of their citizens, who have no respect for religion or spiritual people, and who are just greedy for more and more power and position. Now, the Brahmana then decided, well, I'll try to have another child. And one after another, the same thing happened. Child would be born, would cry, and then would die. And every time, the Brahmana would take the corpse of the dead child, thank you, take it to the king's palace and put this corpse on the king's doorstep. And it's interesting the way the Bhagavatam says it. It says every time that a child died, the Brahmana, the words are, would sing the same song. I was thinking about how, you know, there's songs of lamentation. Are not very powerful. 
nobody really cares what they say. In fact, generally, they're simply a, an object of ridicule in the society. But in those days, it was quite different. So even if somebody was not religious, still they had some respect for the Brahmins out of fear. But Arjuna was certainly not that category. Arjuna, as a pure devotee of the Lord, respected the Brahmins because they're representatives of Krishna. And they're guiding the society towards religious lives. So he was very, very concerned, even for a Brahmin and not in his kingdom. And again, we can all understand this, even if you're a visitor somewhere, if you see some uh, person who's in great distress, you may be moved to try to help them. So Arjuna says, what's the problem? Aren't there any rulers here? Are there no exceptions here in this kingdom? Remember, he's standing right next to Krishna. And now Krishna's not the king in Dwarka, Ubersena is the king. Just like in Vrindavana, Nanda is the king. Krishna likes to be a prince. Sometimes Krishna's described as the king of Dwarka after he marries Krishna. But really, Ubersena is the king. It's a lot more fun to be a prince, you know? The king has all the responsibility, and the prince just gets to enjoy it. And so Krishna's there as the prince. Anyway, he's standing right next to Krishna, and Arjuna's saying, Are there no sanctuaries here? Are there no rulers in this country? He said, There's a country where Brahmanas have to lament if their wives or children are in difficulty, then those sanctuaries are just like stage players. Useless. And just like in a play, you can dress up like a king, but you have no real power. He said, such and such, let them just do fire drinkers with the Brahmanas, he says. Useless. And then he says, you know what? I'll take care of it. That's the mood of a ruler. They see something that needs to be done and no one's doing it, I'll do it. Don't worry about it. Arjuna says, I'll take care of it. And if I can't take care of it, then I'll consider that I must be contaminated. And if I'm contaminated, then I should enter into the fire to remove that contamination and purify it. In other words, I'll commit suicide. So if you have another child, I'll make sure your child is safe, or else I will die by entering the fire. The Brahmana says, you're talking like a naive child. Don't you know that the rulers of Dwarka are the lords of the universe? Not ordinary rulers. We have God himself ruling Dwarka. There's Krishna, and Balaram, and Prajuna, and Anikuda. If they can't do it, who do you think you are? Arjuna says, I'm not any of them. Remember, Krishna's standing right next to him. He says, I'm not any of those people you just mentioned. I, Arjuna. Here's my Gandiva bow when he gets out his bow. See? It's my Gandiva bow. Lord Shiva gave it to me. I had a fight with Lord Shiva. I defeated him. He was very pleased with me. said, okay, well, maybe it'll work this time. All right. Now, either Arjuna stayed in Dwarka for a year, or he came back at around the time he figured the Brahmin's wife would give birth. 
She was ready to give birth. She told her husband, call Arjuna. Now, generally, when a woman's in labor, she says, you know, call the midwife. And call the doctor. She said, you know, call the warrior. <laughs> and I, I used to think, reading this story, what exactly was Arjuna supposed to do? Now, what he did was, he touched water to Ajma, strings his bow, and he started praying to Lord Shiva. You might ask, why is Arjuna praying to Lord Shiva? Well, Lord Shiva was his guru. And also he was thinking two things. He thought, first of all, you know, Krishna wasn't any use in this situation. Why should I bury him? Now he was thinking that because he loves Krishna so much. He has a very intimate relationship of friendship with Krishna. And sometimes he forgets that Krishna's gone. He just thinks Krishna's my friend. So in that intimate relationship, he was thinking, you know, this man's already lost nine children, and Krishna couldn't do anything about it, so I'm not going to go to Krishna. I'll go to Lord Shiva. The other reason is that the Brahmana was there. You know, the Brahmana came to him and said, my wife's so late, come on, hurry up, hurry up. The Brahmana is standing right there, and he knew that the Brahmana was not impressed with Krishna. So he thought, Remember he told this Brahmana, I brought this girl from Lord Shiva. So he thought, I'm not going to praise Krishna in front of this Brahmana. So he started praying to Krishna. So Arjuna goes back with the Brahmana. In those days, women didn't go to the hospital. They had a room in the house or a section of the house where they would give birth. So Arjuna went there and he took his divine weapons and he used them to create a cage all around the house. Well, Raman's wife gave birth. Now, it's funny because it must have been child number 10 since Arjuna Krishna heard complaining about the ninth child, but sometimes it seems that it's child number 9 all over again, so those things are... Sometimes it doesn't seem often that Shastra and the Acharyas are interested in those sort of details many times. We find that those sort of details are not clear. But I'm assuming that it's child number 10. And again, this child is born, cries, and doesn't just die. Now, the other children died, and the Brahmana's wife were able to take the corpse to the king. Now, this child didn't die, it just disappeared. It was born, it cried, and then it was just, it was gone. It just disappeared up in the sky. And not only that, but the arrow that Lord Shiva had given Arjuna disappeared too. Well, you know what it's like when you, you've trusted people, and you've trusted people, and they've let you down. And you trust those same people again, and they let you down. And you trust them again, and they let you down. And you trust them again, and they let you down. And you trust them again, and they let you down. And finally someone comes and says, I'm your friend. You can trust me. And you trust them. And they let you down. So then you're really angry. So this Ramana was not just like and he's not just angry about you, he's angry himself. You ever feel that way? You know, you trust somebody and then you think, oh, try trusting someone else and that doesn't work. And you think, I'm just a fool. So this Brahman was saying that. He said, I'm just a fool. Now he said this in front of Krishna, by the way. And the Acharyas explained that it was much more satisfying to complain in front of Krishna than just to vent in the privacy of his own home. We often find people like that, you know, they have some complaint. They don't just sit at home and yell at the walls. You know, they find somebody to complain to. 
So he went to Krishna. He's described, by the way, as a wise brother. And he said, I am a fool. This Arjuna is nothing but a eunuch. He's just a rabbit. And again, he makes the same point. He said, if the lords of the universe, Krishna, Balaram, Arjuna, and if they couldn't save my child, who can save him? Condemnation on this Arjuna and on his god ego. Now, he starts going on and on and on and on and on. So Arjuna thinks, all right, let me get to work. And without waiting for the Brahmana to finish his condemnation, Arjuna immediately goes. He started chanting some mantras as the Brahmana is yelling at him. He's chanting his mantras, and by mantra, he starts traveling to the various planets of the universe. It says he went to the roof of the universe. First, of course, he went to Yamaraja's planet, and he had to carry his weapon with him, and he's looking around for the whole planet. Where are those babies? Where are those babies? Where are those babies? He goes to the fire god's planet, many other demigods, one planet after another with his weapon in hand. Where are those babies? Where are those babies? Where are those babies? Interestingly enough, he does not go to Lord Shiva's planet. Any idea why he doesn't go to Lord Shiva's planet? Yes, exactly. Because he got the goal from Lord Shiva and he figures Lord Shiva's my guru. He's not going to put me in a difficult situation. He's not going to steal the baby knowing that then I have to enter the fire. So he doesn't even go at all to Lord Shiva's planet. So Arjuna goes all over the universe and he doesn't find the babies. They're nowhere. He goes to every planet in the universe. It's not explained how long it took him to do this. But he checked out everywhere. And you know, that's this sort of thing happens to us, doesn't, doesn't it? We lose something, we check everywhere, we just don't find it. And then you just check everywhere. And sometimes you check over and over again the same place. Anyway, you didn't check everywhere, and then he thought, all right, well, that's it. Give up my life. So he starts preparing to enter into a fire. Then Krishna says, uh, what are you doing? Yourself. He said, look, you're one of my best friends. If you kill yourself, it will look bad for me. So this is a responsibility on everyone who claims to be representing Krishna. And if you're wearing tilak, wearing neck beads, it means you're saying, I'm a representative of Krishna. It's something probably said like the police officer's uniform. And once we do that, then what we do in our life reflects on Krishna, reflects, of course, on Sri Prabhupada, on our spiritual master, on the society. It reflects on Krishna personally. How we behave. Well, whether or not people decide to worship Krishna, whether we like it or not, depends to some extent or to a large extent on how we behave, what kind of integrity we have, whether or not we do foolish things. If devotees do things like commit suicide, it doesn't look very good for Krishna. People will criticize him. Why are devotees doing such sinful things? But this is a great responsibility. Sometimes devotees feel that it's too much responsibility. 
And so therefore they decide that they don't want to advertise themselves as devotees, they'd rather, you know, dress in disguise blend into the population so that they can do whatever they like and nobody can criticize Krishna for it. But of course, along with great responsibility comes great benediction. Right? If you take that responsibility for Krishna and you actually do your best to act properly, then Krishna is very pleased with that. So even though the responsibility may be a bit of a burden, it is also a way to get Krishna's recognition very quickly. Uh, but then one has to be at a high standard of behavior. Now it's very interesting what Krishna said to Arjuna. He said, please do not think of yourself contemptuously like this. So very often people mistake that humility means I think of myself contemptuously. And of course there are many songs and prayers by great devotees that appear to be like that that are saying, I'm a materialistic rascal, just full of lust, I have no good qualities, I'm the lowest of the low, no one is more sinful than I am. I know, and I'm sure you've heard the story before, when Prabhupada was here, there was one devotee that got up to speak and said, Prabhupada, I am the most fallen. And Prabhupada said, you're not the most anything, sit down. So, speaking of yourself contemptuously, it's really quite unattractive. If you think about people that speak about themselves contemptuously without real humility, it's sort of repulsive. It's very false. No, I'm so useless, I'm so fallen. You know, once or twice it's tolerable perhaps, but after a while it just becomes distasteful. It's not pleasing. And uh, why we think that something like that is pleasing to Krishna is a little bit of a mystery. It's not pleasing even to ordinary persons. And I had one friend that would do that practically every time I talked to him. I'm such a terrible mother, I'm such a terrible wife, I'm such a terrible devotee, I'm such a bad this, I never do this right, I never do that right, never, this is bad about me, that is bad about me. And after all, I said, can you please stop it? I don't want to hear it anymore. So of course we can look at what is real humility. Real humility is a very joyful thing. It's a very free thing. It's seeing oneself honestly. It's not some false thing. And it's not something that's depressing. It's a part of loving Krishna. In fact, without deep humility there can't be any love. Now, love and pride don't go together. But if what one thinks is humility is not joyful and honest, then it's not the real thing. Humility and joyfulness go together. Uh, without humility, there's no love. Without love, there's no joy. You could say that humility is total truth. Not to want to artificially be something else. If you can think about it, we all look for some friend who is willing to love us as we are. Where we can be completely honest with that person. And the person accepts us and loves us. They may not think that everything we do is wonderful, but they love us just as we are. Isn't that nice when there's somebody like that? 
And we're lucky if we can find a couple people like that in our lifetime. Where we can really just be ourselves, where they don't expect us to be something other than what we are. Right? Most people either think we're better than we really are or we're worse than we really are. And you can't have a relationship, a really deep relationship with someone without that kind of authenticity. It's impossible. I mean, we have so many friends with whom we can't be fully authentic. If we told them all of our faults, they'd go away. So how can one have a deep relationship with Krishna without being authentic? And authenticity means seeing myself for what I am. Seeing how small I am, how helpless I am, how without Krishna's mercy I'm completely fallen. How on my own, I have no good qualities. As we were saying, coward boys see all their good fortune is just the glance of Krishna. But that's a liberating thing. It's liberating from pretense. As it says in the Bible, all is vanity. All our conceptions in this world are just pretense. So humility doesn't mean further pretense. That's not possible. So Krishna says, don't think of yourself contemptuously this. That's not pleasing. And then he said, the same people who are now criticizing us later will glorify us. So this, of course, is the way of the world. The people who glorify you today will criticize you tomorrow, and the people who criticize you today will glorify you tomorrow. Therefore, one should be detached from this honor and dishonor business. Right? And it can happen like that. The people who are your friends one day can turn against you in an instant. Or the people who are criticizing you can glorify you in an instant. Then Krishna says, all right, let's go. Now this is interesting because Krishna could have brought back the babies just by desiring it. He could have solved the whole problem, you know, just, I desire the babies to be back, here they are. But that's not what he did. Krishna called for his chariot and he said, okay Arjuna, let's go find these babies. And the, does anyone know the name of the horses of Krishna's chariot? Krishna has four horses. Saivya, Megapushpa, Balahaka, and Subriva. Not the same Subriva that's on the month's friend. Saivya, Subriva, Megapushpa, and Balahaka. Now these horses, like Krishna's chariot and like Krishna himself, comes from Vaikuntha, comes from the spiritual world. They're not ordinary horses. Obviously you can't have a chariot with ordinary horses and go into outer space. Right? No difficult. So they start going through the whole universe. They're going through the area that's lit up by the sun. They cross what's called the seven islands, which are areas of Jamudri and different oceans. There's a saltwater ocean, an ocean of ghee, an ocean of milk, an ocean of liquor, an ocean of sweet water. They cross various mountains and then they come to Loka Loka. Anybody know what the Loka Loka mountains are? So the space of Loka Loka mountains are an area beyond which there's no sunshine. The limit of the sunshine. So as they go beyond the local local mountains, 
they come to a darkness. And the darkness gets thicker and thicker and thicker. In the Harivamsa, Arjuna describes that first this darkness was like mud, was like driving through mud, and then it was like driving through a mountain. As they come to this darkness, the horses stop. You know, most horses are by nature skittish. If you're going to use horses, say, in battle, you have to, or in a city, the four cars, they used to sometimes use horses in the city. And then you have to really train them to tolerate sudden difficulties. Because horses being uh, prey animals, uh, their defense is to run if there's a predator. So any kind of scary thing, immediately they shine and they run. So these horses, apparently, although they were from Vaikuntha, they stopped at the darkness. No, we don't want to go in. And then Krishna took out his Sudarshan Chakra, which was like thousands of suns. Remember reading how the Sudarshan was chasing Dakshanadi into Kashi? And the Sudarshan was described like the sun at the end of the universe, the devastating fire. So Sudarshan is like thousands of suns. It's also compared to Ram's arrow that pierced through the army of the Rakshasas in the same way the Sudarshan pierced through the darkness. It's like if we're going to walk around here in the dark where there's a lot of mud, so you want to bring a torch to cut through the darkness. So just imagine if your torch was a Sudarshan, like thousands and thousands of suns. And Sudarshan means auspicious vision. So it gave all auspicious vision. And not only is there a dark area behind Loka Loka, but at the end of the universe there's various coverings. This universe is like a prison, and just like if you want to go into a jail, so there's going to be various security checkpoints that you go through. So the horses went through all these coverings at the speed of the mind. We're going to take a minute and look at these coverings. So the first covering on the universe is, what's the first covering we have? Earth. And in this covering, Bhumi Devi worships, who's her Lord? Who's the Lord of Bhumi Devi? Varaha. Yes. Lord Varaha. And uh, one can see in Varaha, in this covering of earth, that all the opulence of the universes are swirling within each of the pores of his skin. And there in this covering you see the subtle forms of all material enjoyments. The next covering, which is ten times thicker, is made of water. And what form of the Lord is worshipped there? Matsya. The next is made of fire. There, Surya Narayan is worshipped. The next is of air. There, Pujuna is worshipped. Next, of ether, where Anamuda is worshipped. Next, of ego. That must be interesting. A layer of ego. That's. Okay, earth, ten times water, ten times. Water is fire, ten times fire is air, ten times air is ether, ten times ether is ego. 
So there's a very thick layer of ego around the universe. And there the Lord is Sankarsana. Then there's a layer of the Mahatattva, presided over by Vasudev. And finally, there's a layer of Prakriti Devi, who is the sister of Lord Vishnu. Mahamaya, who does she worship? Anybody know what incarnation is worshipped there? Mohini Devi. So, of course, in this world we think the greatest beauty is that a woman and the ultimate woman is Mahamaya. But beyond her is Mohini is Krishna. And this Mahamaya Prakriti Devi, she both binds us and she also can release us. And so the devotees also want the grace of Mahamaya to be released from this world. Therefore, we are using Mahamaya in Krishna's service. And that's what she likes. She's a sister. We're using marble and electricity and so many things. Yet one can describe the abodes that first there's the abode of Brahma, this universe. Then, within this universe, above Brahma's abode, there is the abode of Shiva within this universe. Then the Shiva Dakshai Vishnu within this universe. Above that, Varva Dakshai Vishnu within this universe. Above that, Mahadevi, which is what we were just describing. Above that, time. And above that, uh, Lord Mahavishnu was also called Mahakala, Great Time, or was also called Sadashiva. And of course, this Sadashiva appears as Advaita Acharya. So this Acharya with Krishna Arjuna goes through all the layers to the abode of Sadashiva, Mahakala, Mahavishnu, Karuna Dakshayashnu. And as they come to this place, there is the light of the Brahman. And although it's very pleasing, it's very powerful. And therefore, Arjuna first closes his eyes. And Krishna says, My dear Arjuna, as you don't need to worry about this light, it is simply another manifestation of myself. It's the rays of my own body. Indeed, it is myself. There within the light of the Brahmajyoti, Arjuna sees a palace with thousands and thousands and thousands of jewel pillars. Pillars made out of jewels. And in that palace he sees a huge snake of Anantasesha. His body is white, but his necks and his tongues are bluish. On his hoods are jewels, he has thousands of hoods. And his white body looks like crystal glass, like quartz crystals. His body is very soft and it's formed into a bed and on it lying very comfortably is Mahavishnu. So what a description of God. Generally, people in the world say, no one can say anything about what God looks like or what he does. And we have all these wonderful descriptions of God. So he has eight arms, he has curling hair, and the light from the ornaments in his crown and his makara earrings 
reflect onto his curling hair and create all sorts of highlights and brilliance in his hair. He has his Kastuba jewel, which is the resting place of all of the living entities, that's us, and his three gods of hair. He's surrounded by the personified forms of all of his weapons, like the Sudarshan disc, the chakra, the sword, and above their heads is the symbol of who they are. So there's this person of Sudarshan, and above him is the symbol of the disc. He's surrounded by energies, personifications of the energies of nourishment, of fame, of creation, and beauty. He's also surrounded by personifications of all mystic powers. So for those of you who were here at the first class this morning, you'll remember that we also saw many of these personalities around each of the Vishnu forms that Lord Brahma saw. And then Lord Mahavishnu Mahakal is wearing a long garland. Now Krishna and Arjuna offer obeisances, and you might say, why is Krishna offering obeisances? But because Krishna is taking the role of a human being, he is also performing this etiquette. And we were talking about this also in the story of Lord Rama, that Krishna is a chucha. He doesn't fall down. And when he's playing the role of a human being, he plays the role of a human being. At least that mood. He doesn't, even when he does God-like activities, such as lifting Govardhan Hill, his mood is still like that of a human being. He doesn't take the mood of the Supreme Creator. So Krishna remains in this mood even when seeing Mahavishnu. Then we have, remember when Krishna was calling for the cows when they were stuck in the sugar cane with the fire? Remember we were talking about how he had a voice that was like this thundering cloud but also full of love? How he's most loving and caring and yet the supreme autocrat? So we see this again in Mahavishnu. He's smiling, pleased, he's very pleased. Prabhupada says he's pleased and he smiles pleasingly. So he's emanating love from his smile and yet he's speaking in a voice with great authority. Now he's going to speak in such a way as to bewilder Arjuna. He said, you too have appeared on earth with your own potencies as my incarnations of Nara and Narayan. He said, whenever you kill the demons, they always stop by here on their way to the Brahman. So I get to see all of them. You kill them, they stop by here, I check them out and send them to the Brahman. He said, I would like you to quickly come back to me. And I'd like to tell you, now this is the tricky part, that the reason I took the Brahmin's babies was I wanted to see you. Krishna and Arjuna take the Brahmin's children, who in some descriptions it says that they're still the same age as when they were taken, which means they were all just two minutes old. And some descriptions it says that they've grown up. And Krishna and Arjuna reply to Mahavishnu simply by saying, Then they put the nine or ten children in the chariot and they go back.
through. Who can remember what they go through? What's the coverings? Reverse order. First one I gotta go through is Rakriti. And the Lord there is Mohini. Next one I gotta go through is Mahatatva. And the Lord there is Vasudev. Next they're gonna go through Ego. And the Lord there is Sankrasha. Next. Ether. And the Lord there is Aniruddha. Next is Air. And the Lord there is Rajunya. Next is Fire. And the Lord there is Suryanarayana. Next is Water. And the Lord is Matsya. Next is Earth. And the Lord there is Rama. And after the layers, you come to the area beyond the Lokaloka Mountain, where it's dark, and then as you pass the Lokaloka Mountain, then you're going to go back over the seven islands and the seven oceans. And then they brought the Brahmins' babies back, or grown-up sons. Anyway, they brought his children back and gave them to him and his wife. It doesn't say so, but I assume that he was pretty happy. <laughs> There's no mention. All we hear about is this poor Brahmin who complains. You know how it's like. It's like that when you run a business. If people have something wrong, they complain. And as soon as they're happy, they don't say anything. So there's no, there's nothing in the Shastra about the Brahmin like thanking anybody or, or, or anything like that. That's not mentioned. So Arjuna's really thinking about this whole thing. You know, it's interesting that Prabhupada says that he wants his devotees to be independently thoughtful, to think about each verse in the Shastra from different angles of vision. And I don't know why, even though Prabhupada says that all the time, that so many devotees think that being thoughtful is mental speculation. As if you're never supposed to think, you know, kind of an odd idea. Anyway, are Jews really thinking about this whole thing? Suppose one would, wouldn't one? You know, if your good friend, I mean, he knows from time to time that Krishna's God, but it's not something he really thinks about very much. Mostly just thinks about Krishna as his friend. I mean, Arjuna's obviously not an ordinary person either if he can chant some mantras and go traveling all over the universe. I mean, he even went to the planet of Lord Ramam, which you can't go to by ordinary mystic power, so he was an ordinary person. I mean, we don't know too many people who can chant mantras and travel all over the universe. Not a couple people claim to, but, you know, it's kind of hard to check out the veracity of their story, unless <laughs> they can bring you along with them on their chariot. So here Arjuna goes on this chariot, and he goes beyond the universe through all of these coverings, and each covering has more and more subtle and pleasing enjoyments. And then he goes to Vaikuntha. So if you took a trip like that, you'd probably think about it, right? All right, so he's thinking about it. And he's thinking, I'm just an ordinary person. Which is interesting that he thinks that. That he's an ordinary person. Again, you know, he can travel all over the universe by himself. But he's thinking, I'm an ordinary person. I'm just, you know, Pandu's son. I'm just a prince of the world. And, uh, wow, I just want the spiritual world back. That's pretty amazing. And then he thought, 
What's really strange is that Mom Vishnu said, I took the babies because I wanted to see you and Krishna. It just doesn't make any sense to me. He thought, he thought, now if he wants to see Krishna, all he has to do is come to Dwarka. That's what I do when I want to see Krishna. I just take the trip to Dwarka and say, hello, here I am. Why did he do that?
So Arjuna certainly becomes convinced that Krishna is the supreme, and also he's really amazed by the opulence of Vaikuntha. And of course, his work is actually more opulent than Vaikuntha. But Arjuna is again in the mood of seeing Krishna as his friend. And he was really astonished by the opulence of Vaikuntha. And he thought, if Mahavishnu, Mahakal, is just an expansion of Krishna, then whatever opulence we have in this world is obviously due to Krishna's mercy. And Prabhupada comments there that we should always be conscious of that. You know, generally we think that whatever opulence we have is due to our own qualities. I have my opulence because I worked hard for it, I deserve it, because I'm wonderful, because I'm whatever. Because I have a good family, because I have money, because I'm smart, because whatever. It's me. And of course, when we have trouble, we think that's somebody else's fault. That's my boss's fault, or my husband's fault, or my father's fault, or my mother's fault, or my wife's fault, or Krishna's fault. And the Prophet says, whatever opulence we have, all of us have some opulence. Prophet says, everyone has some extraordinary talent, and all of us have some opulence. Whatever opportunity uh, that is Krishna's mercy. That Krishna is lending it to us, that Krishna is letting us use it, and that we should always promise that be conscious that this is Krishna's and have an attitude of an attitude of gratitude. An attitude of gratitude is thanks a lot, Krishna. Now I'm going to take this and use this as I like. But an attitude of gratitude isn't just a mood, it's behaviors. And this is really Krishna's, let me use it for his service. All right, well, for those of you who stayed with us all day, what did we do today? We have just a few minutes. First of all, we talked about Brahma stealing the boys and calves. Krishna killing the Gasura, the celebrations going on in the heavenly planets, Brahma coming down. Seeing the boys playing lunch, taking jasmine flowers on the samosas, taking away the calves. Krishna comes, sees the boys, sees the boys are also gone. Krishna expands himself. The love between the parents and the boys, the love between the cows and the calves. Balaram finally getting in on the secret, rather late because Krishna didn't want to feel separation. Rama coming back. Uh, Krishna showing all the Vishnu forms. At first, we're not being bewildered. There can't be two identical jivas. And Krishna showing all of the Vishnu forms, Brahma becoming totally bewildered, and then just falling down like a rod to offer prayers to Krishna, after which time he goes back to his own world, and Krishna returns after a minute and goes back to Vrindavan. Now we talked about dancing on Kaliya, how there was a lake in the Jamuna that was separate from the current, and there Kaliya had been for many, many yugas, poisoning the whole atmosphere. Krishna finally decided to get out this burning black fire in Jaguna's belly. Now he went there with his coward boys and calves. They drunk the water, apparently died. Krishna restored them, got up on the Kadamba tree, put his air up in the turban and tightened his belt, jumped in, started playing music on the water, had the water explode out of the lake up to a hundred bone lengths, was captured by Kaliya, how everybody was running in the muddy footpath muddied by their tears, how they were practically fainting on the side of the lane, how Balaram made Krishna to get himself out of Kaliya, 
how Krishna then danced on Kaliya's heads, and how Kaliya finally in his mind surrendered, at which point then the wise man asked Krishna to release him, and Kaliya also then asked for release, at which point Krishna said, you have to go, but let your brother Guru can also be one of my carriers. Then we talked about Krishna's following the forest fire, after the killing of Balabasura, they were at Bandirva, and there while they were playing, the cows and goats and buffaloes wandered off looking for fresh grass, even though Krishna was there. When 15 kilometers got stuck in the sugar cane with the fire behind them, thirsty and crying, and then finally they didn't know where to find them, finally they followed the footprints, and then Krishna called the cows with both love and authority, called them each by name, and the cows responded. Then on the way back, the fire surrounded them on eight sides, the cowherd boys were like one about to die. Krishna said, close your eyes, because he didn't want them to be distressed and swallowing the fire. And Krishna was thirsty for fire, like people are hankering for chilies and hot spicy food. And the fire then tasted like a refreshing beverage. And when the cowherd boys opened their eyes, they were back at Bandirabhan at the river, and they decided, Krishna must be a demigod, or maybe we're demigods too. Then we talked about how Pandraka decided that he was Vasudev. And he came with two false arms and a fake costume jewel and a fake helmet and he painted on a Srivatsa mark and told Krishna, you've got to give up your name and your weapons and take shelter of me. And Krishna went to fight him and his friend, the king of Kasi, who came out all together with five divisions. And Krishna was decimated the army, and then he cut off the head of his Pandrava, which he swallowed He also cut off the head of the king of Kashi, which he threw into the city. Because the king of Kashi and his wives had been saying that they were going to cut off Krishna's head and throw it into the city. At which time Sudhachana, seeing Kashi's head, became very angry and vengeful, even though there was no cause for that. And he asked Shiva for a benediction. Shiva said, engage the priest to do black magic. Kill anyone who's either not a Brahmin or who's envious of Brahmanas. And he decided Krishna was envious of Brahmanas since Krishna allowed, as a Krishna as a Satya, allowed the Brahmanas to worship him. They then invoked the fire demon. It actually was the demon was personified fire, Dakshinagni, with legs as long as coconut palms and emperors coming out of his eyes and a flaming trine and every step he walked, everything would burst into flame. And he enters into Dwarka and the Yadu rulers got very upset. Krishna says, why are you guys upset? You're my own man. I don't want to disturb my chest game. Sudarshan will take care of you. And then Sudarshan came like the son of the end of the universe, chased his Dakshinagni out of Dwarka. Of course, he calls him out of Dwarka. Chased him back into Kasi. Into Kasi. The Dakshinagni killed Sudarshana and his priest, and Sudarshan decimated Kasi and went back to Krishna. Then we talked about Shalva and his magic airship, how Shalva was so angry that Krishna had married Rukmini and that he killed Sushupal and therefore he did austerities praying to Lord Shiva where he was living on just a handful of dust every day. When he finally met Lord Shiva, he said, I want an airship that's going to be very dangerous to the Yadu dynasty. Lord Shiva said, fine, he got this magical airship and when Krishna was in Indraprastha, he attacked the city of Dwarka, throwing tree trunks and rocks and hail and lightning and illusions. Prajupta held him off for 27 days. 
uh, almost apparently died. Then Krishna comes back with the Buddha on his flag, right? and is fighting against Shava, who presents his false Vasudev. But Krishna, with one smash of his club, destroys the airship of Shava and ends up cutting off his head. And then, of course, what we just read now, how the Brahmana lost ten of his babies, said that nobody could protect him. Arjuna says, I'll protect you. And although Arjuna prays to Lord Shiva and goes all over the universe, ultimately he has to get with Krishna on his chariot and go to Lakhinda. So, of course, these are just some of the stories. There are so many more wonderful stories about Krishna, whether it's his incarnations. Abhakti Sananda Saraswati said that we could be publishing a newspaper at every moment with all the stories about Krishna. So I want to thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to speak about Krishna. I hope that you've enjoyed this, and I hope that you'll be inspired to hear and read about Krishna and think about Krishna more and more. Thank you. All glory to Shri Prabhupada.